My interview guest today is an acclaimed and truly independent filmmaker. He started working in the Roger Corman School of Filmmaking in the 1970s, well known for starting the careers of a prestigious bunch of American filmmakers, including Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, and various others. For years, he's worked on genre scripts and as a script doctor on films including Piranha, The Fugitive, Apollo 13, and others. From these jobs, he has also helped fund his filmmaking. He is a particular underrated director who tackles social, political, and cultural history of America through the lenses of class, religion, and race. Despite many not knowing his name, he has been instrumental in helping foster the careers of quality American actors, including Chris Cooper and David Strathairn. Just a handful of his films include Return of the Secaucus 7, Liliana, Eight Men Out, Meituan, Lone Star, and most recently Amigo, which examines the lost story of the Philippine-American War. It is a great honor, and I'm truly humbled to be joined by Mr. John Sales. Nice to be here. I, I have to correct one thing, though. Okay. I, I saw The Fugitive, both both the movie and the TV series, and liked yeah. them quite a bit. Okay. I didn't write it. Oh, It's wow. one of those IMDb things that just keeps getting propagated <laughs> and repeated, and I had nothing to do with writing The Fugitive. I oh. wish that they would send me the checks. But oh, man. I didn't write it. I did not know that. Okay. Well, good to know now that I don't, you know, spread any misinformation yeah. or whatnot. So... Um, so I'm curious, what was the genesis of Amigo, and also your novel A Moment in the Sun, which is uh, kind of a companion piece to the film as well? Yeah, I, I kind of ran into this history uh, doing research for another novel, Los Cusanos, that I wrote, uh, doing uh, research about Cuba, um, uh, going back to the Spanish-American War. I kept writing into this phrase, Philippine-American War, and I had never heard of it, and I'd had relatives who lived in the Philippines, I knew where the Philippines was, uh, and I asked myself, you know, America, usually when we win a war, we celebrate it with lots of movies, at least. How come, you know, there's only two movies and they're very obscure that were ever made that have anything to do with this conflict? Um, how come Filipinos were not taught this history? Um, you know, it's just left out of their history books. Um, and so I got suspicious and I started doing some, some research. And what I realized is there was this very quick turnaround in the way Americans thought of themselves from being the champions of liberty who were going to go down and, and help free the Cubans from the yoke of imperialist oppression by the Spaniards to saying, you know what, we're imperialists. We can sit at the same table with the, the, the British and the French and the Russians and the Japanese and the Germans. Uh, we're players now, and we're not leaving. And we're going to, even if it, we have to kill a half a million Filipinos to do it, we're going to take over this country because we're white and we're Christian and they're not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it is fascinating how it is such a particular part of history yet just never even talked about. I mean, even... You know, the Spanish-American War, the Mexican-American War, you know, places where we're actually actively, you know, taking up land or whatnot, that it's just like... I mean, I don't even know if Howard Zinn has even... Yeah, he, he said, actually has, okay. has uh, some sections on this. I think some of it is that Americans finally, after the first blush of success, were not very comfortable mm. with the idea. So I think from then on, our imperialism tended to be more economic and, and cultural imperialism. And we might go in and depose your government and put a new one in that's more friendly to the United States, but we're not going to stay and take you as a territory. Um, we got away with it in the Philippines, Puerto Rico, Guam, Hawaii, 
um, a few other little places. But finally, we stopped doing that thing, that that very overt thing. Um, and I think it's it's just there. There's a uh, I, a lack of comfort in the American psyche for that role, or at least admitting that role. Most definitely, yeah. That is definitely true. One of the things I was fascinated by Amigo specifically was how much it so reminded me of Maitwan in many ways. Mm -hmm. You have a situation of two distinct sides, you know, you have... Uh, whether it's the, the mining company or mm -hmm. American, you know, military, the imperialists or whatnot, and, and then, you know, the union and, you know, kind of independence. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting then it's set up like that and then there is a whole, you know, the, all the people are caught in between and sometimes circumstances, bad circumstances that are even out of their control and forces that are larger than themselves or whatnot. Was that a specific reference point when you were thinking about making this film? You know, I, I, I think the, the thing that I tapped into with Matewan was um, the gunfight, the structure of a gunfight movie, which is escalating confrontations leading to that main confrontation at high noon, you know, on Main Street. You know. In this one, in, in Amigo, the the structure is somewhat different. And I think the thing that's unique about it is, yes, there are, are two sides, but the audience gets to spend equal time with both sides and eventually be equally sympathetic with some of the people on either side. So it's a little bit because you get to read the subtitles and understand what the Tagalog-speaking people are saying as well as the Americans. Right. Uh, you get to be on the sidelines watching a train wreck that's about to happen and you've got friends on both trains. Um, but you realize there's a war on, and I can't divert these trains. They're going to smash into each other, whether I, I want them to or not. And even a couple of the characters, vaguely, because they can't read the subtitles, they haven't seen the movie, vaguely feel like something bad is about to happen, but I don't know what to do to, 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 to head it off. Yeah, it's interesting how you use certain juxtapositions of those two sides, mm -hmm. you know, like a, a cockfight with an escalating thing between the, you know, the revolutionaries and the, the mm -hmm. American military and stuff like that, how those things, to me, seem like so specific and... and done so well of just like just marking those points well and, and also that, that that once a certain dynamic is set up it's set up so that inevitably there'll be conflict you know if, the, if that's what you've set up so if you train birds to kill each other that's what they're going to do mm -hmm. you let them go you know and if you put a you know a, a razor on their claw they're going to do it very quickly mm -hmm. um, you know you arm two sides and you put them in a certain situation where they're yeah. facing each other over a river, right. probably eventually somebody's going to shoot somebody. Yeah. Now, this film, you know, obviously many people will say, well, it seems to evoke things of Iraq, and nowadays mm -hmm. some people will say, but I mean, a, a lot of the striking things were obviously you could think of Korea, you could think of Vietnam, you could even think, you know, mm -hmm. Mexican and Spanish American Nazi War. Nazi occupied France. Yeah, exactly. Um, How do you think that the, the Philippine War specifically? was similar and dissimilar, even, say, to more of the American kind of Asian campaigns, military campaigns like Korea and Vietnam? Well, I think in the case of, of Vietnam, it was similar in that most of the soldiers before they, they were drafted or, you know, joined the army had never heard of the place, didn't really understand the conflict. It was presented in very simplistic terms. And once they got there, said, so what is this? And there was this thing of, wait a minute, 
tell me the difference between the good Vietnamese and the bad Vietnamese. Is there some, they don't look different to me. So this guy who I'm hanging around with smiling at me, he could be one of the bad ones. So what you, what I ran into again and again when I was doing the research um, for this piece was letters home from American soldiers saying, and you can't tell the good amigos from the bad amigos. That's the hardest thing here is, you know, they could smile at you in the day and, and knife you in the back of them. Um, but we don't know. You know, we don't know, you know because it's a guerrilla war. We're surrounded by these people. We're supposed to kind of get along with them, but we're also supposed to shoot them if they're on the wrong side. Um, that's very similar to Vietnam. There are some big differences, but it's very... For instance, in the movie, you hear uh, Chris Cooper's character, the colonel, say, uh, we're, we're supposed to win their hearts and minds. And his heart isn't in that, but he says it. I always associated that with Vietnam, but then I kept running into it in this period. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt saying it, Mark Twain saying it in an ironic way. And then I traced it back to the Bible, at least. <laughs> so what you realize is that there are some things that are very specific about this war, but then there's those things that repeat themselves in all wars. Definitely, definitely. What were some of the um, challenges and then also equally some of the joys of working in you know, a place like the Philippines with a strong Philippine cast and then working in the language of Tagalog? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, I got very lucky in that I got steered to um, Jose Lacaba, who's a, a Filipino linguist, writer, poet, and screenwriter, to do my translation for the Tagalog-speaking people in the movie. Um, so I was able to, to say to Pete, I could, I could say, well, not only do I want it to be 1900s deep Tagalog, but fashion it for each character, because he's a screenwriter, you know. One character is not going to always talk like the other character does. And because he's Filipino and knows the history, he understands the the way that the language changes depending on whether you're deferring to the person you're speaking to or they're deferring to you. That the language actually changes um, in form automatically. Um, I, I'd say really for us, because the Philippines has a real film industry and they've been making films for a long, long time and there's a lot of talent and a lot of experience there, the main challenge for us turned out to be, um, A, that they're on the equator, and even though it feels like summer, the days are only 12 hours long, huh. you know, and I, it's like, where'd the sun go? And they said, well, it's only, you know, it's only 12 hours of sun and 12, you know, all year round. Um, and that um, cockfighting is still their biggest sport, Sabong, and everybody's raising fighting roosters. And the roosters don't just crow at the break of dawn. They crow all day long. <laughs> so, And we were shooting sync sound, which is un- unusual in, in the Philippines. Right. So we had to um, uh, track down and relocate an awful lot of fighting cocks wow. and build them a little condo several <laughs> miles away and say, we'll keep them here for you until the movie's done shooting. Wow. But we had a lot of sound problems at the beginning. Oh, wow. Um, so... Specifically, one of the things about your writing and how you deal with that, and it, it's specific, I was just reminded of, in Lone Star, there's a specific character who says, there's not a border between good guys and mm-hmm. bad guys. And that seems to invoke a lot of your cinema mm-hmm. to me. How do you keep from, especially as you, in writing, mm-hmm. um, in your background, how do you keep from the fall, the, the pratfalls of caricature and simplicity mm-hmm. within drama because obviously you have a point of view obviously mm-hmm. you have a perspective 
whatnot, but you are also very specific in the dramatic situation and all the complexities and nuances. Yeah, I, I think one, one thing uh, you always have to uh, keep in mind is very few bad guys, and there's some really bad people in the world uh, or in your movie, think of themselves as bad guys. You have to understand where are they coming from, what do they want, how do they see the world, and how are they complex and not simple. Um, and the minute you start to do that, they get to be more interesting characters. Yeah. Um, you know, they may be characters who you still wish, you know, you know, he needed killing. You know, as you want, you want to get, you know, killed by one of the other characters or just disappear from them because they're messing up everybody else's lives. The characters you like. But you at least understand them as human beings. Um, and I think the second thing is that, that to me, the, the center of drama is always when you have a situation where a character might go this way or they might go that way. Which way are they going to go? We may be rooting for them to go in this direction, but they may not do it. And unless there's that chance that they don't do it, and sometimes they actually go the wrong way, and you go, oh, no, you know, how disappointing, or you know, what's going to happen now? Um, there's no drama. It's just, well, of course, he's the hero. He's going to, you know, defeat the bad guys. Right. And it's one of the things that you actually see, which has kind of been interesting, in that the, um, the renaissance of comic book movies, um, usually they go to the versions or the episodes of that comic when the character got the darkest, yeah. when the character is the most conflicted. Right. Now, so it's not the simplistic Batman of TV, you know, Biff Bam Pow. It's the dark Batman, the dark, you know, knight that they, they, they are able to make a movie about. Because otherwise it's just, well, they're the bad guys and he's going to kill the bad guys. And of course he's not going to die at the end of the movie. So, so what? So very often the job of the screenwriter is to find those, find any, you know, superhero and then find the conflict and bring that into the story. Yeah. One of the key things that I just love about your cinema is is the study and, and look at history. And I, I'm curious, as a, as a huge history buff myself, mm -hmm. like what fascinates you so much about American history? Well, two things. One is just, just in, in general, um, period history is how did, how did people think things? You know, when you write a period movie, you have to ask questions about your characters like, is this before or after Freud? Is this before or after the women's movement? Is this before or after capitalism? You know, those big ideas change the way people see the world. You know, and, and you have to say, well, no, wait a minute. This is this is an era when uh, you know he's, he's the time of the knights or whatever. People just decided you were you were noble within you or you weren't. And if you were born a base villain, there's no way you're ever going to be noble. You know, you have a black heart, and that's all there is to it. You, you know, there, there, there's none of this meritocracy floating around in that world. You know, so I'm fascinated with that. But I'm also, you know, kind of fascinated with the way that movies have dealt with history, you know, throughout the history of movies and how they can change. You know, how many different Billy the Kids have we seen? You know, um, so that history is a vehicle for the filmmaker to say, okay, what do I want to talk about? Well, what's in this history? Is it just nice clothes? Or do I hate the clothes, so we're going to have Armani dress all the guys in Untouchables that they, they at least look cool, even if we use some of the, the Al Capone story. Turning to more political science, because I know, obviously, this on the other. What do you think? I mean, obviously, this is you know near the beginning of a very concerted effort towards imperialism and an interventionist foreign policy mm -hmm. that went, you know, 
it's still going on freshly mm-hmm. now. Um, what do you think are the chances that we can see any kind of reversal of that in the U.S.? Well, you know, I, I think it's something that waxes and wanes. Certainly um, after this and after our, our coming in very late in World War One, which was not very satisfying to Americans, it was a nasty, brutal war, and at the end of it, Americans said, so what did we get besides a bunch of shot, shot up kids who got buried over there or came over wounded or messed up in the head? Uh, there was this huge um, isolationist move in the United States. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, both the left wing was much more interventionist than the, the right wing was right. for a long, long time. Um, you know, certainly during the Spanish Civil War. Um, but then World War II came, and we became expansionists again. And, and there became this idea: of we can't leave anywhere in the globe alone because it might affect us eventually. And this is not about our profit. This is, you know, in an immediate way, it may be about our profit in a, in a bigger sense of keeping capitalism alive. Um, but I, I think one of the interesting things now is that corporations are not necessarily national anymore. They're international. They have more power than most governments. They can buy and sell governments. They can buy and sell politicians. They can. They own the media. You know, there's no, no such thing as mainstream media. There's corporate media. Um, and so that there's this other factor in there that, that used to be a player, but really didn't control what it controlled. So when you're talking about imperialism, you're talking about two things. One is just gunboat imperialism, where you go and you kill the guys you want to kill, and you put in somebody who's favorable to you, and then you leave and say, okay, that's taken care of for now. We'll come back if there's any trouble later. And then the other is economic and cultural imperialism, which is a much bigger game. But it's not just about the United States anymore. It's right. economic imperialism is corporate imperialism, and that's international. And then you have things like you know uh, the World Bank or the IMF or whatever that have a huge control over world economies and whatnot, mm-hmm. and especially ones that are struggling, you know, and especially places like Africa and whatnot, where mm-hmm. it's just a neo-colonization in some ways. Yeah. Um, so I, I, and I don't think that's going to stop. I, I I just think that um, you always have to sell a war. And you have to sell it to the people whose children are going to go and fight and die. And that um, sometimes that's easier than others. And sometimes your enemy makes it very easy for you. And sometimes you have to cook up something to, to, to get it going. And sometimes there's a legitimate reason. You know, those things float together. And, and so I, I think that finally um, our news media, our so called news media, not too many of them are trying that hard. You yeah. know, they'll, they'll lead a story away from the truth or toward it, depending on how their ratings are going. Right. You know, that's what they're there for, is to get ratings. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of good people who work in those media, but they don't control it. Um, so our ability to understand what's going on in the world is really kind of short-sheeted by both the media and our own government. You know, our own government... You know, doesn't even tell one department doesn't tell the other everything they know. You know, uh, they're certainly not going to tell the American people what they need to know to make a good decision about it. So I don't think we have much hope. I think what's going to limit um, United States, you know, tendency toward imperialism is that it's expensive. And pretty soon we won't be able to afford it. So we'll have to pick our spots more carefully. Right. Certainly, I I did some traveling in Guatemala, and I. I was talking about, you know, so, so has the Guatemalan army decided not to really kind of go kill the Indians up in the mountains anymore? They said, 
you know, pretty much what happened is the U.S. just said, we're cutting down. You can either dr drink less beer or kill fewer Indians, but we can't buy these helicopters for you anymore. Mm. And they said, okay, we're not giving up our beer, yeah. so I guess the Indians don't get killed this way. <laughs> you know, it can really get down to a dollars and cents thing. Right. Of, you know, I, I remember George Lucas's um, first movie, THX. The brilliant thing at the end where they're chasing the good guys and there's this voice that's like the voice of the you know, world control and the, the people chasing him get to a certain point and they say, um, this chase is no longer cost effective, you know, belay. Yeah. And they all just say, let him go. Yeah. You know, and that can happen on an international scale. Right. Now, obviously, uh, we all know the fight against unions right mm -hmm. now in the U.S., especially against teachers. Mm -hmm. I've come from a large family of teachers. One of my mm -hmm. younger brothers just started as a teacher. You have a background with your father as an administrator, mother as mm -hmm. a teacher. Have you thought about making film, like focusing a film specifically on teaching and on those issues or whatnot, because I mean you've dealt with similar. It, it's things a before. very tough thing to, to, to dramatize, um, be, you know, because once again it is complex. Um, the we made a movie in the Philippines where there's almost no unions, there's uh, no effective union in the film industry, and people there, really talented people, are working 24 hours on and an unpaid 24 hours off, and they're exhausted all the time and the quality of their work suffers. And the bar has been set very low, partly because the people who are making money on that system don't want it set any higher because they know they can't they can't make anything of a better quality if they're gonna work people that that those long hours and pay them that little. Uh, the same thing is gonna is happening to our educational system. You know? And so it really is a choice for Americans. And you know a lot of Americans they went to public school. They hated it. They don't feel good about public school, and they figure, oh, well, why, why should we pay those lazy teachers? You know, they didn't see the teacher, you know, uh, working for another three hours after they got home, you know, correcting tests, you know, planning the next day's lesson or whatever, you know. They just said, oh, they got off at 3 o'clock, and it was like a track start, you know, you know, and my dad was still working at the factory or whatever. It was bullshit. Um, so it's very, very complex. And a union doesn't solve every problem, and a union brings up some problems, and the unions have some internal problems, which is, what if you've got a guy who's a jack-off, whether it's on the production line or as a teacher, um, you're supposed to protect them. The union can't be firing union employees for the quality of their work. That's up to the administration, and you, you almost just kind of by who you are have to defend that person, even though all the other teachers say, that's a terrible teacher. I wish he'd transfer to another school, but they won't necessarily go far enough to say that I think he should be fired. Going a little bit more on your personal background, just like from like a more auteurist perspective or this mm -hmm. and the other, what about your personal background, your upbringing, whatnot, your life experience when you were young, do you think still carries through in your cinema now, or how much is that or doesn't, you know, I mean, for some people, it, that's a big thing. For others, it's kind of yeah, ancillary. Well, you know, I, I did grow up in, in Schenectady, New York, where there was a constant war between the General Electric Company and the IUE, the Electrical Workers Union, um, which eventually General Electric kind of won by plant by plant closing things down and sending them overseas. You know, so yeah. the guys lost their jobs or moved. Um, but they would, you know, routinely kind of threaten, oh, geez, if you guys, you know, go on strike or if you won't take a rollback, 
we're going to have to close this plant. They'd already closed it on paper. They knew exactly what they were doing. They knew exactly where they were going with it. But they wanted to pay a few dollars less to all the employees. So, you know, that that's my kind of union, you know, growing up background. And then I, I went to public school in a very, very mixed, you know, kind of school. There were There were kids of all kinds of income levels and different religions and different ethnicities. And so I came from a, a kind of American mix rather than from a very homogeneous kind of background. Yeah. Now, what what keeps you going? What, what drives you? Because, I mean, I'll be honest, and yes, I'm a young person and maybe mm-hmm. I'm not jaded enough to feel but it is a tough time for independent filmmaking, mm-hmm. especially some of the specific kind of independent filmmaking that you make, mm-hmm. that you create. And it's a tough time politically in the U.S. too. Mm-hmm. And making films like this and having such a small audience for mm-hmm. some of these things, sadly enough, uh, what keeps you going? What keeps you drive? What what gives you something that doesn't fall into cynicism? Well, for one thing is I'm lucky, and you know, I used to work for a living. I used to work in, in hospitals and factories and punch a clock and make minimum wage and stuff like that. And I'm lucky enough that I have this bread job, you know, writing for big studios. And I throw a lot of that money into the movies that we make. Um, and we've been lucky enough to get 17 movies made in 30 years or whatever it's been. Um, you know, I don't know if we'll get to make another one, but there are certainly stories I'd love to tell. You know, so some of it is just it's something I really like to do is storytelling. Yeah. You know? uh, a Moment in the Sun, my novel, um, started as a screenplay, mm. but we could never find it. And then I expanded it into a novel. So I found another way to tell that story. And, you know, and, and, and the, the audience for a uh, novel is generally a lot smaller than even a small movie. Um, so you just feel like, well, there's some audience for it. Um, what can we do to get more efficient with the filmmaking or the scope of what we make or whatever? So you can still tell a story, but everybody in the world doesn't have to see it twice to, to even have a chance of breaking even. Right. You know, or you're going to lose your money, but you get to make a movie. Right. It's a, it's a cool thing to do. You get to work with a lot of great people. It's a you know a good thing for human beings to do together. So that's a lot of what does it is that I like the filmmaking itself. I like the storytelling. Um, I don't really have a strong feeling like um, it's important. I think any one of our movies is important, you know, and that the world would fall apart if we didn't make that one movie. But I do think that if you think of it as a cultural conversation, that somebody better be talking about what's really going on. Well, something you know, or substantive. Or else it's just, yeah. it's just mainstream stuff, which is yeah. absolutely, if, if what's going on gets in the way, let's get it out of the store. It's true. It's true. Who are, I'm so curious about this. Who are some of your, I mean, I can make comparisons, but who are some of your inspirations, both cinematically and politically? People who, who constantly are ones that, you know, inspire you. You know, um, I didn't have a whole lot of, you know, I didn't really even understand that movies were made until I was just about college age. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't like I grew up as, didn't go to film school. But there were movies that I saw that that kind of, whether they were serious movies or comedies or whatever, that I said, that was a really neat story. So just as storytellers, you know, I I look back and there's Akira Kurosawa and there's, you know, Ingmar Bergman, there's John Ford and there's John Huston and there's a bunch of storytellers. So it's usually worth checking in just if they if they worked on the thing mm. to see what they did with that particular right. subject. 
you know, and the same thing with novelists. You know, there's yeah. Faulkner, there's there's Hemingway, there's Philip Roth, there's Norman Mailer, there's you know Tony Morrison, there's you know Louis Erdrich. There's a lot of people who I check in with, you know, when they've got something new, just because in the past there's been something really interesting that they did with it. Um, I'd say politically, it's not necessarily politicians. It might be somebody like Howard Zinn mm-hmm. or Studs yeah. Terkel, who I got to uh, work with, yeah. who just kept coming back for more, even though they they kind of knew we're not going to win this thing. Yeah, there is no, there are no final victories. But you know, as one says, you know, there's no final victories. There's also no final defeats. You know, this is all a process, and you you don't just declare victory like Teddy Roosevelt did in the Philippines or George Bush did in Iraq and walk away, and that solved everything. In fact, it may have solved nothing. You may be just at the beginning of the war when you say that, but it just means that you don't want to work so hard at it anymore. Somebody else is going to do the work for them. I love how you cast Studs Terkel and Eight Men Out. Yeah, and and truly my big difficulty with Studs on that, one was that he had been, been a radio actor, so he was used to saying a line and striking a pose. And I said, studs were still, the camera's going, oh, right, right, yeah, 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 yeah. And the other is that he was, he was you know, about five foot tall and I'm six four. Yeah. So to get us in the same frame was not always easy to definitely, do. Definitely, definitely. Now, what, who would you, uh, um, you know, for people who want to make cinema that is uh, very uh, substantive and uh, and something that... Uh, is your kind of independent cinema people who are young I know mm-hmm. I count as all those people who want to make s- stuff mm-hmm. like that what would be your advice I mean well you know, you know? I'd, I'd say certainly the biggest compliment we get and the one thing that, that after 17 films has really happened with us is that um, really good actors will say yes to working for scale for four weeks five weeks to be in one of our movies um, if you write a really good part for a good actor You've got a shot at that actor saying, okay, when is it? Well, if you change that to August, okay, I'll give you four weeks. That's good. Actors became actors because they like to act. And they may be making a lot of money. They may not be making much money. But if you give them a good part, they're going to be really tempted to do it. So that's one thing is it starts with the screenplay, you know, and it starts with here's a great story and here's some great characters and you're going to get a bunch of actors who are going to want to do it. Um, movie making is getting more user friendly for everybody. It's getting cheaper. Uh, a lot more people are going to film school, have some kind of technical chops, whatever, at a much younger age. They get to work on rock videos or commercials or whatever. But, you know, it is definitely, there are more people who know what they're doing at a younger age than there were when I started. So, so the possibility of making a movie and making it with some good actors is there. It's just the money thing that you got to work out. You know? And that you do by hook or crook. Every time is different. You know? And so, for instance, what I did with Amigo is I wanted to deal with a historical war movie. I found a way to do it on a village level. So you also have to think about that. Don't just write something. Write something that you can afford to make well. And it doesn't have to be contemporary, you know, but... What story is there that is that is you know has enough unity of you know place and there's not many people in it and I know where to get it and get a lot of production value that we don't have to pay for. Um, what can I write that tells a story I want to tell using note? So you still got a shot, and then you, you start at the back of the line with everybody else trying to get it distributed. But 
that's that's you know as I always tell people who want to go into the movies, you know I think the line that sums it all up is the the Hyman Roth character in Godfather Two, who just says, "Michael, this is the life we've chosen to live." <laughs> True. So, and that's what you're getting into. Most definitely. Well, you heard him. That was John Sales, and uh, his film, new film is Amigo. Go see it. Go support. Go support the American Ken Loach. Um, <laughs> he is seriously, people. If you have not, if you do not know the works of John Sales, I definitely say go out and support support Amigo. Check out his book. His one thousand. Nine hundred and fifty. Okay, on. but still, it's not nearly a. Hey, I, you know, so, mad props. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, thank you so much, John Sales, for talking with us. Thanks. Thanks.